Lord, when you called us to worship, we were told to bless you with all our being, all our soul, all the faculties of our soul, our mind, our affections, our will, our heart, our emotions. And then we were told to forget not all of your benefits, all the things that you, by your grace, have done and are doing and will do for us. Healing our life, forgiving our sin, redeeming us from the pit. Lord, your word is a witness and a testimony to the reality of all that you have accomplished in Jesus Christ. May we truly taste the sweetness and the beauty and the excellence of Jesus as we approach you through your word by the power of the Spirit this morning. Illumine our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we continue to worship, hear the word of the Lord as we continue in our study of the book of Romans, which is just two verses, Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. I guess two ver- I can read real slowly if it's just two verses, right? It says, whom God put forward, speaking of Jesus, who in verse 24 said, through his redemption gave us the gift of justification and righteousness. And Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by God because he loves us. You may be seated. One of the things we definitely uh, embrace in our culture is the giving and receiving of gifts. Just to remind everybody, this week, a week from today, is Mother's Day. So while I'm giving an illustration about our culture, may you be aware, honor mom, get out this week and get good gifts for your moms. And even for you who are moms, I'm going to say even a week early, happy Mother's Day. I'm going to take us back to Christmas, because I can remember as a kid anticipating Christmas. Anybody join me with that? I mean, absolutely. There was something, and I think the anticipation was as exhilarating and great as the actual getting of the gifts. I couldn't wait for Christmas morning. In our family, we weren't allowed to get up till 7 o'clock, And I think I still woke up at five, went into my brother's rooms and said, we'll just sit here and wait for the clock to strike seven. And then we'd get our parents. And of course, then we still had to wait for them to get their morning coffee. I didn't understand that then. I now understand that fully. Don't talk to me. Don't do anything till I've had that first cup of morning coffee. And I remember the waiting to be both exhilarating and excruciating at the same time. Now, Paul says in another place in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gifts. Apparently, the gift of Jesus Christ is beyond words. It's beyond expression. It's indescribable. I wonder, have any of us thought about that phrase? Have any of us thought about the gift of Christ as being beyond Any gift we've ever received, we could ever receive. And I wonder if we have that sense of exhilaration when we come to learn of and hear of and embrace the gift of Christ. 
I think Paul is wanting the church at Rome to get a taste of this inexpressible, indescribable gift. He is describing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what God has done and accomplished in Christ. And certainly in these verses, he is wading into deep waters, deep waters of deep theology, of theological precision and discussion, inviting the church, though, not just to be theologically precise, he's inviting the church at Rome to a kingdom party over the inexpressible, indescribable gift. See, we're going to wade into the deep waters. Hope you all brought your floaties with you this morning, okay? Because we're diving it. I mean, did you hear? I did read that word, and I've practiced that pronunciation. I'll even tell you a quick story. One of my professors, one of my good friends is Steve Childers, who used to teach at RTS Orlando, and he always used to say, it's not propitiation, it's propitiation. You know, he makes sure we pronounce the word. So you're going to be going home at lunch today saying, Maybe I don't understand what it means from Jeff, but I'm going to say the word, propitiation, and get that. So that's deep theological waters, and I'm going to try to communicate as clearly as I can. But I want you to understand the goal, even as we entered into this, because the goal is not a transfer of information. That is a necessary means. You have to have the information correctly, but you don't stop there. That's not the aim. The aim of our theological precision is the furtherance and the deepening of our worship of the triune God, to taste the sweetness of Jesus, to see his beauty, to see his excellence, and to love him in response with every fiber of our being. So this is an invitation to a kingdom party. See the beauty of Jesus in what he has done. Now last week we introduced this section of the letter to the Romans with Paul mentioning the righteousness of God. He stated how the righteousness of God was revealed and given to us as a gift. And that righteousness meant right status. So that means in the sight of God, before God, in reality, God, because he's gifted us this right status, we are right before him. And you say, even if I mess up as Rick said he did, how about what if I go to the post office and chew out somebody? If I believe in Jesus, do I still have a right status? Nod your head with me. The answer is yes, absolutely, because of the righteousness of God, the saving righteousness of God. Now, in verses 25 to 26, he's bringing up again the righteousness of God, and he's meaning it as it's to show himself forth as a person, his character. It is an attribute of God that God is righteous, one of his attributes here. Now, what is Paul teaching us here? What does he want us to learn about this inexpressible, indescribable gift? Two things. This indescribable gift addresses a problem and accomplishes a purpose. So he wants us to learn the problem that this indescribable gift addresses. And here's the practical side. It is to the depths that you understand the problem that your life will explode in worship and communion with him. And then second, the purpose the gift addresses. Okay? The problem the gift addresses, first of all. Verse 24, it ended that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 continues this thought, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, dive in with me. Have the floaties on. Here we go. 
what does the word propitiation and kind of its uh, similar word, I've got to introduce another word because they go together, even though it's not specifically mentioned in the text, you guys are going to have a fun lunch in terms of impressing your friends and neighbors and each other with these words. The other word is expiation. Got that? We're in deep theology, propitiation and expiation. What do these words mean? Here we go. The word propitiation means the removal of wrath. Yes, we're going to be talking about the holy wrath of God. The removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. Thomas Schreiner, who's written a great commentary on the book of Romans, refers to propitiation as the turning away of the wrath of God which otherwise would rightly fall upon sinners. Do you hear that? Our sin produces... See, one of the things, the world has a problem with the wrath of God because they define it kind of the way humans would. Wrath is what that man showed Rick at the post office. It's our human emotion. It's our human rage. It's our human... That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's holy, just response to a world that has turned away from him. And you want the wrath of God, but you don't want it to fall upon you. Propitiation is that the wrath of God fell upon Jesus. That's why he is the propitiation. He took the wrath of God. He absorbed it in himself so that it could turn away from us and turn into divine favor. Now, expiation is the removal of sin, the wiping away of sin. So if you put these two things together, we see that expiation is the wiping away of sin, which results in propitiation being the satisfaction and removal of God's wrath. Because sin has been wiped away, God's wrath has been appeased and then removed from us, all accomplished by the sacrifice of Christ. That is the point of propitiation by his blood. Now let's try to communicate this as clearly as we can. What do these words mean? I know these are deep concepts, but the first thing we need to understand here, if we're going to understand terms like this, is we need to understand that God is graciously stepping in and doing what we could never do ourselves. Even if you don't fully understand these words, I want you to understand God is addressing a problem you and I could never address. God is handling something for us that we couldn't handle. This is grace from beginning to end. And the problem stems from the fact that God has always had a desire or a purpose for which he created us. So if we're going to understand these concepts, we have to go back into the Old Testament and start at the beginning. Why did God create us in the first place? Was it because he was lonely? Needed compassionate? Was God getting tired of Jesus and Jesus tired of the Holy Spirit? By the way, if this is on the internet, I'm being sarcastic now. Let me just kind of because the obvious answer is no. God never needed anything, never got lonely. He's complete and sufficient in and of himself. But he created us not to get love, but to share and give love. He created us to commune with us in order to share his love with us. See, the scriptures tell us that by definition, God is love. 
And by definition, love is sacrificial and self-giving. So God, by the very definition of who he is, by his very person, by his very nature, is love and created as an expression of his nature to share that love with us. So the purpose of creation was for him to commune with us. For him to want us and live with us. Have that clear in your mind. God wants to live with, be with, and commune with you. Have this in mind as well. In order to commune with us, God designed places, special places for that communion. Meeting places between God and us. See, we need to understand something as we understand and interpret the Bible. God uses pictures in order to communicate spiritual realities. He uses pictures. He does this throughout the Old Testament. So God, throughout the Bible, has set up and given us pictures of established places that communicate in this pictural picture term, symbolizes the reality of that communion with us. The first special place like this was the Garden of Eden. Do you ever think what the purpose of the Garden of Eden was? Was it just a place to have lovely fruit trees and run around and name animals and stuff? Or did it have a deeper purpose? It had a deeper purpose, and that purpose was special, intimate communion. Unhindered, unbroken communion between God and man. God set up the garden to be kind of a sanctuary where his presence would be felt a special meeting place between God and man. And of course, before sin entered the world, this communion could be experienced without hindrance. Perfect transparency, perfect vulnerability, perfect openness, perfect intimacy. Nothing separated God and man. Then a problem came. Sin entered the world. And man turned away from God. So God banished man from the garden. A problem was introduced because of God. See, one of the key questions we have to keep in mind as we go through this is that God wanted communion with man, but because of sin, a problem existed. How can the holy commune with the unholy? God is just, that's his nature, and he can't stand to be in the presence of sin, in the presence of of unholiness. So how can a holy God have communion with unholy man? Sin must be dealt with, and dealt with in a way consistent with God's nature, consistent with his justice and his holiness, what the Bible describes as wrath. Now remember what I said earlier. God communicates in the Old Testament through pictures. We will not understand the Bible, even the New Testament, without understanding the pictures and what they represent. So throughout the Old Testament, you've got this problem that sin entered the world, and now he puts signposts, pictures, symbolizing realities like communion with God that the New Testament will show us are fulfilled in Christ. One of these signposts is the tabernacle, Kind of this mobile sanctuary that went and led the people of God in the wilderness. That was followed by the temple built by David's son Solomon. They symbolized, much like the Garden of Eden, much like the sanctuary, the meeting place, the place of communion between God and man. But the problem was still there, wasn't it? 
How can a holy God commune with unholy man? So God set up a system, a system of sacrifice in order to provide communion between God and man. See, we have to remember we have this sin problem that must be dealt with. We can't simply go into the special presence of God just as I am. Our condition must be dealt with. Now remember when we get to Paul, what is he describing? He's describing the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything Paul is talking about is grounded in the narrative of the Old Testament. So here is Paul saying By Jesus' blood, Jesus is put forward by God as the satisfaction, as the removal of God's wrath, as the propitiation by his blood. The text is telling us God put forward a propitiation, Jesus Christ, by his blood. This is the language of the temple, or earlier, the tabernacle. Paul's wanting us as readers to make that connection. So as one commentator put it, he said, in the tabernacle and in the temple, the priest, think Aaron in the book of Leviticus on the Day of Atonement, the priest would place bread on the altar as an offering. Now Paul is using this image and combining it with another, the mercy seat, where between carved angels, God would meet with his people in grace and forgiveness. And the word that Paul is using for pitiation, which is the Greek word hilasterion, alludes to this mercy seat. And so as another writer put it, instead of the temple and its symbolism, Paul is saying Jesus himself is now the place where and also the means by which the God of Israel has met with his people and forgiven their sins. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and its mercy seat. All of this imagery is fulfilled in Jesus. Here's what you need to know. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the offering of the gift. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the offering shedding his own blood. And Jesus deals with the problem of sin by himself, by himself being the propitiation, himself taking on the wrath of God so that the wrath of God can be removed by the offering of himself. Now, I've gone through this, and you may or may not understand the word yet. I hope you do at least a little bit. I want to feel like at least I'm communicating somewhat clearly. But I hope one of the things that you are taking away from this is that this gift is utterly astounding and amazing. Everything that was necessary for you to be able to commune with God, which is the purpose of your being here, the purpose of your life, is restored and accomplished by Jesus Christ. He is the indescribable gift. He, by himself, addresses the problem. Next, look with me at the rest of the text and the purpose the gift accomplishes. It says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay? This actually states two purposes that this accomplishes. The first here it says to show 
God's righteousness. Now, why does Paul say that? Earlier, last week, we looked at the righteousness of God that was revealed as a saving righteousness, a righteousness of God that was given to us, to his people, as a gift. Here, the righteousness of God is seen by most commentators as an attribute of God, his righteous character. Now, of course, the question arises, why does God need to show his righteous character? Does he need to prove something? The answer, of course, to that is no. Again, Thomas Schreiner puts it very well when he says, God isn't forced by human beings to prove his righteousness. Rather, his desire to prove his righteousness rests on the fact that he wanted to demonstrate to the world that he is righteous. And on this view, God set forth Jesus as a propitiation to demonstrate his judging righteousness, his righteous character, which was called into question because he had passed over former sins without punishing them. See, again, we have to recognize God is just. He must punish sin. Remember back in Romans 1.18, where Paul wrote, the wrath of God is currently being revealed against sin. Now, again, I'm going to address something that I alluded to earlier, just a few minutes ago. There are many today who have a problem with this concept of a wrathful God. They say, isn't God love? How can a God of love also be wrathful? How can a, doesn't a loving God just tolerate everything we do? Isn't a loving God just purely merciful? I can't believe or worship in a God of wrath. Now, here's how I would answer that. I would say I wouldn't want to worship a God who isn't also a God of wrath. Because think about it this way. Again, God's wrath is not like man's wrath. God's wrath is not like human wrath. Again, as one commentator put it, God's wrath is not primitive, arbitrary, random, or capricious. It is his holy and righteous response to human sin. It is his holy and righteous response to human sin. So think about it. If there were no wrath, there would be no response to all the evil, all the injustice, all the oppression, all of the violence, all of the sex trafficking, all of the abortion, all of the racism that is in the world. If there was no wrath of God, there would be no response to evil and injustice. I don't know about you, I don't want a God who won't deal with abuse and oppression and injustice. I want a God who will deal with those things. And so one of the things Paul is addressing is, he's addressing the kind of common objection, wait a second, for all of these centuries, you've passed over former sins. So what is God doing? He's saying, in Jesus, God's righteous character is now being demonstrated by Jesus Christ taking upon himself the holy response to sin. Which one other thing people will often say is, well, isn't then Jesus just trying to persuade this kind of tyrannical, wrathful, angry God? And again, look at the text. The text tells us God put forward Jesus. Did you see that? Do not play the members of the Trinity against one another. They are in complete union and harmony here. 
Again, as Schreiner puts it, he says, God himself took the initiative to satisfy and appease his own wrath. God solved the problem. He's a wrathful God who must deal with human sin, and he did it himself by himself putting Jesus forward. As Schreiner says, the greatness of God's being is such that he cannot be confined by human conceptions of what God would do. And friends, I think the only proper response to this is awe-filled thanksgiving and worship. How else do we respond other than by thanks be to God for this inexpressible, indescribable gift? And so he shows the righteousness of God. And look what else. Verse 26 says it was to show his righteousness at the present time, meaning in this perfect season when the time was at its fullness for a reason. So that, here's the purpose again he accomplishes. So that he might be just, meaning righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The purpose God accomplishes through the work of Jesus is that he is both just and justifier. Meaning we are justified before him. Now what does this mean? What does this mean that we are justified before him? What does this great, rich, I hope your floaties haven't, th- haven't fallen off yet. We're still in the deep waters. But I hope it's leading you to worship. Because because of the justice of God, we are justified before him. What does that mean? I want you to picture it this way. I heard this illustration years and years ago, and I th- still think it's the best way to visualize it and picture it. Picture a law court scene, okay? You're now all, every one of us is on law and order, okay? And not special victims unit, everyone victim unit, okay? Actually, we're all the perpetrators in this illustration. In this illustration, we're in a law court, and we are the defendant. God is the judge. This is not a jury trial, because... You don't have a jury of your peers here. We're all defendants. The judge will render a verdict based on the evidence. So we're the defendant, and God is the judge. The prosecuting attorney says to the bailiff, bring in the evidence. And all of a sudden, those double doors open widely. And in comes the bailiff with one after another tall filing cabinets filled with all the evidence of everything wrong you've ever done, and more than that, filled with the things you should have done and didn't do. So it's just one after the other of tall filing cabinets. And what are you doing? You're sweating bullets. You're the defendant and going, the judge is going to render a verdict based on the evidence. And you're sitting there going, I'm in trouble now. But you have a defense attorney. And he says to the judge, you're a just judge, just and justifier. I want you to open the folders, pull, start pulling the folders up and look inside. And the judge takes the folder and he looks inside and he sees the first one and on it is a stamp, paid in full. And he looks again and he sees a stamp, paid in full. And he looks at every one. Then he gets the second filing cabinet and the third and the fourth. And every single one says, Paid in full. And the judge says, I'm just, and I make, must make a just verdict, a just rendering. 
and I make the verdict based upon the sure and perfect evidence, you are forgiven. Your debt is paid. And you're going, this is awesome. But more than that, the defense attorney, and now you're going, you're actually learning. You have an incredible defense attorney. His name is Jesus Christ. And he says, judge, I want you to look again inside those folders. He says, keep examining the evidence. And the judge opens the folders, and he sees the perfect life of the defense attorney. He sees all the love and the holiness and the compassion and the courage and the goodness and the majesty and the beauty, the perfect way that everything is done in obedience to the covenant obligations. Everything that should be done is done. And and again, God is just. That's what the text says. And so based on that justice, what is the verdict? And the judge says, based on the evidence of Jesus' perfect life, I declare you, the defendant, to be righteous. I render, I count you, I declare you in the right. See, God is the justifier and you are justified. And the definition of justified is that based on the evidence, sure and complete and perfect evidence of Jesus' sacrificial death and perfect life, you are declared forgiven and righteous. Both aspects are part of you being justified. God shows forth his perfect character in that he is just and justifier. He declares you forgiven and right. Now what does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for us? What happens now? Well, let me close with one more illustration. See, where has the defendant been all this time? Well, in a sense, he's been living in the prison. Okay? He's been in the holding cell. Yeah, he may be brought out to witness the trial, but he was in the holding cell. Isn't that where they hold the defendants? No bail. You know, the bail for all these five... No bail. No bond. So he's in bondage, in the prison cell. No freedom. And so one of the things is as a result of God's justification, this rendering, this verdict of forgiven, debt paid, and righteous, the prisoner is set free. Cell doors open. You're free. Good. Now you go out and you look at the bright sunshine. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. But now you're going, well, I've been in this prison all my life. Where do I go now? And you're kind of wandering around, but there's more to this good news because... There are other scriptures that tell us. We learn in other places of scripture that God not only justifies us, but he adopts us as his very own. He adopts us as his children with the full rights of sons and daughters. He makes us heirs. He brings us to his own home. I want you to think of a magnificent, gorgeous palace. We are children and heirs of the palace. He takes us to himself. He takes us to his home. He takes us to his palace. And I want you to think of a palace. What would be the center of a palace? If you were to enter into a great majestic palace, what is the center? Is it the bathroom? Is it any of the bedrooms? No. It's the banquet room. In the center of the palace is a banquet room 
where we can commune with God at His table where He feeds us with Himself the bread of life and we will feast in the house of Zion. But all too often, what do we do? We wander around the narthex. A pretty chandelier out here. We don't recognize that we have been redeemed and freed from the prison to the palace to be fed and commune with the living God. We don't value the fact that we have the opportunity to live in the palace. We're wandering around missing the kingdom party because Jesus has been put forward by God. He found you this worthwhile to put forward Jesus to be the one to remove God's wrath and accomplish the righteousness of God to render the verdict that you're forgiven and righteous, that you can feast and commune with him forever. And friends, that's what we're doing at the table. This is God's banquet room where he says that Jesus is the bread of life and he's feeding us. See, think about the areas of your life where you feel weak, where you feel tired, where you feel lonely, where you feel helpless. Where are you going to get the strength from? Let Jesus feed you. Where are you struggling with sin or doubt or maybe even despair? Let Jesus feed you. Where are you hungry and thirsty? You, if you are in Christ, you've been brought from the prison to the palace. Get out of the narthex and come in to the sanctuary. Come into the temple and commune with God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, I know that there was a lot of deep theology here. And I pray that we didn't get mired down or bogged down in the theology, but instead we saw Jesus, his excellence and his beauty. That all of the theology points to and reveals to Jesus. And so, Father, I just pray that our hearts would see Jesus, whom you put forward so that you can commune with us. And now we come to your table to commune with you as you communicate yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.